thinking about this weekend, you know, last week I talked a little bit, we talked about uh, a little bit of philosophy. We talked a little bit about postmodernism and, and, and the underpinnings of it and the things that are going on in our culture, in our world, but especially in our culture. And we talked about truth and how truth has become kind of a slippery thing and everybody has their own truth, so nobody can hold each other accountable to any kind of truth. There's no underlying truth. And we talked about what the Word of God says. There is underlying truth to this world that has been set up by God. And we see it all the way back at the beginning of the Old Testament. And we see it coming straight through into the New Testament and continuing into this day. And one of the things I was thinking about was, I took a little time, I read um, uh, Martin Luther King's speech that he gave when he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And it was very interesting because, you know, he's, he's in front of all these people. He's giving this speech, and he goes straight to the Bible. He starts talking about that there is truth that underlies every concept of, of society, of life on this earth, and it cannot be denied. It is a truth. And, and then he starts talking, and he starts bringing in Old Testament scriptures that we're supposed to love mercy, and we're supposed to do justice, and we're supposed to walk uprightly before the Lord. And we, and we celebrate him this weekend, and this is an important thing for us, because God used him to bring about truth in our culture and to bring about justice in our culture. And so uh, I was just thinking about that because it tied in so well. I wish I had pushed last Sunday's sermon to this Sunday because that concept of underlying truth that is undergirded and upholded by God is such an important concept for us as Christians to grasp, to get a hold of. And so uh, I just want to say that because I've, I've been thinking about it and, and it hit me. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to continue. We're going to pick back up. We took a break over Christmas and into January. We're going to take back, pick back up on our study of the book of John. Now, John, we've been talking about certain things. Jesus has been giving, and he made it very plain. He's giving signs. He talked about how he was the living water. He talked about how he was the bread of life. He talked about how he's the good shepherd. He talked about how he was the gate, the door. And, he's, and he, he gave miracles that were signs. And what are those things? Well, we know what signs are, right? We understand the concept. You're driving down the road, and you go, I wonder if there's something to eat at the next stop. There'll be signs. And those signs come beforehand to tell you what is coming. They set it up so you know, this is what I can expect. And Jesus is giving signs to tell people, this is what is coming. And to this next, uh, probably probably next three uh, Sundays. We're going to look at John chapter 11, which is famous because this is, this is where the resurrection of Lazarus occurs. And this is one of Jesus' signs. Now think of that. It's a sign of what is coming, of what is coming. For, not just for Jesus, although that is part of it, but for all of us. It's our hope. It's the hope of glory we talk about that this sign points to. Now, let me just set the stage for you. Today, we're talking about, and we will be for the next couple Sundays, the one whom Jesus loved. What an incredible statement that is. And I want to show you something. This is, this is where we're at. Now, if you see up on the screen there, there's a, there's a little map of Palestine, and you can see Jerusalem. And then to the right of Jerusalem is the Jordan, the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. Now, Jesus in John chapter 10 was in Jerusalem, and they were attempting to kill him. And it tells us something key, but his time had not yet come. It was not the right time. So he went over the Jordan River, 
into the, to, into the area just kind of above that big box. He went into that area, which is another ruler, another kingdom. Uh, so he, it's a different, different justice system. So he's safe there, and he teaches, and he has great success. Many people come to believe in him. And this story today, if you look in the box that's inside the map, you see Jerusalem, and then you see Bethany. Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. It's a community, almost like, almost like a suburb of Jerusalem. And this is key for us because this is where everything is going to be centered around for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about Bethany. So I want to read you this scripture. This is John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. You can follow along on your Bible. In your Bible, you can follow along on your phone. Uh, it won't be on the screen. We'll go over the verses, you know, as we do by, on the screen. But John chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his hair with her feet. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness is not unto death, will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, let us go to him. but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So here we have this passage, and it's just some interesting stuff. I, 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 didn't, I didn't break it into an outline or anything. We're just going to just roll through the passage, see what you can see, and then apply parts of it to ourselves. So Jesus is giving signs. Coming up is the sign, I am the resurrection and the life. He's already raised a young child. He's already raised a young man also from the dead. He's done that previously, we know from the other Gospels. But that was always not long or at the moment of death. They they had just died. So a skeptic nowadays, or a skeptic even back then, might say, well, maybe they just fainted. Maybe they just passed out. Maybe it was a coma and they came out of it. And so now what's going to happen? This time... It's going to be a man who's been dead for four days. Now, this is key. It doesn't seem as much to us, but it's very key. This is an incredibly arid country. So decomposition sets in quickly with a dead body. All right? That's why later, when we get to this, one of the things they're going to say is they're going to say, Jesus, he's been dead for four days. It's going to smell horrible. It's going to smell horrible because decomposition sets in quickly, Right? And the first sign of decomposition is what? It's rotting flesh. It's that smell. And so the Jews, oftentimes, 
because that area, and this kind of goes into the historical aspects, because of that area, this is not a surprise that I'm interested in history. <laughs> because of that area, uh, it's very rocky. And so oftentimes they would carve out graves. If you had land that was deep enough to go three or four or five feet deep in soil, that was farmland. It was too precious to make into a cemetery. So oftentimes, or most of the time, as much as they could, they would carve it into a cave. Now, here's the problem. That's incredibly expensive. You can't carve one cave for each person. There's not enough room. And so what they would do is they would carve a cave, and I should have gotten you a picture of this, and there would be a, like a low bench in the, in the, in the stone where if, if someone had died, they would lay that person. They would cover them with linens. And then there would be just cutouts carved out in where they would put boxes of bones so that one cave would be a family tomb and could hold 20, 30, 50, the bigger they made it, more people could fit in. That's how they were able to be able to afford carving out a whole cave for burial. And so what would happen? The person would die. They'd cover them with linen. A lot of times it was almost like a bag, right? So then the decomposition, decomposition, (laughs) compensation, the decomposition would happen, and after a while, when they knew it was about done, they'd roll. There would often be, at times be a stone or some sort of heavy door. They'd roll it away. They'd have this bag. Now it's just bones, little bits of hair. And they would empty the bag into a box, put it in the wall, mark a name on it. Now, some of the boxes were very plain. Some of them were ornate, like this one. This is scholars and archaeologists are. Man, today is a bad day. Archaeologists and scholars have examined this. It's got a name on it. It was found in the right place. This is the burial box of Caiaphas, the high priest, when Jesus was sentenced to death. That's his box. It's got his name on it. He was deposed about three years after Jesus' death. He moved to the family farm. This was found in the cave at the family farm of his family, and it identifies him. So it's an incredible discovery. It was discovered in 91, but they've put it all together in the last 10 years or so. And so that's what would happen. See, that box about this big would hold the bones of that person. And they'd put it in the wall. And then someone else, they'd do the same. So this is what's going on with Lazarus. It's, he's in a stone. They put him in there. They've laid him out. They're going to cover him with linen. And it's been four days, so they know it's going to smell bad. All right? So here we go. This story that we're going to look at. John takes a lot of time for this. A whole chapter, and it's not a short chapter. It's interesting. Why so long? Because he wants to teach us some incredibly important things. And there's no way we can do it in one sermon, but we're going to take it now. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hand. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So now John is mentioning something. He's getting us centered on who are the people involved? What is the place involved? Bethany. Who are the people involved? Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He identifies who Mary is. She's the one who pours perfume. That's mentioned in the next chapter in John's book. And they have a special relationship with Jesus. If you know anything about Mary and Martha, you know they have this very personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. And evidently, Lazarus, their brother, did also. How do we know that? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and her sister, and Lazarus. Plus, 
It's just an amazing thing that he says, the one you love is sick. And Jesus knows instantly who they're talking about. That is an amazing thing. That's something we need to explore. The one you love is sick. God loves you. He loves you. Like that. Like that. So, after, the, after he had said this, he went to tell them, the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him. So evidently, Lazarus was special to the disciples also. I mean, it was all of them had this sort of a relationship. And John is focusing on this. He keeps bringing us back to this. He loves Mary and Martha. He loves Lazarus. The disciples have this affection, you know, a friendship. He wants to make this a point of emphasis. Why? Because what's going to happen is so shocking. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days. This is amazing. You would think it would say, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he dropped everything, jumped in his car, got on to 64, almost got a couple of speeding tickets so he could get there quickly to heal him because he loved him. Or even he loved him so much that he immediately fell to his knees, prayed to his father for healing because Jesus didn't need to be there to heal him. He could have healed him from a distance and said, Lord, heal this man that I love so much. But he didn't. And it seems terrible from our point of view. You know, we know the whole story. So that softens it. But if you didn't know the whole story, imagine reading that. Imagine reading that. Um, I, my son and daughter-in-law just had our, our first granddaughter. So I'm so excited. I'm so excited. We're little Sasha, and she's beautiful. You know, but if they had said, if they had said, there's something wrong, come quickly. I, I, you know, you guys know, I struggle with speed limits to begin with, Right? I, it just would have been a bullet, and I'd have just said, mail me the ticket, here's my life. You know, I just, I'm gone. I'm, I'm to Richmond as fast as I can. Why? Because I love them. I love them. What if they had said, hey, we're having problems with it, but will you please come? Please come to the hospital. You know what? Oh, gee, I gotta, I'm speaking tomorrow at church, right? Got to do that. I can't postpone that. Who would cover? I don't know, Right? Uh, I got, man, oh man, you know, I'm supposed to, there's a bunch of guys, my guild in World of Warcraft, we're going to do something here on Sunday evening. So maybe I just, uh, I, I, whew, how's Monday at three? Hey, no, this is why this is stunning when you think about it. We read over it, we know the whole story, it doesn't even bother us. And yet, when you think about it, when you, and this is that thing we talk about so many times, put ourselves in their shoes. He waited. He waited two days. Now, he knew why he was waiting. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So Jesus was not being unloving. He was not being unthinking. It wasn't that he was being too busy to care. What was going on? He knew the outcome. He knew Lazarus would be dead by the time he got there. If you work it back, Lazarus probably... If Jesus had immediately gone, Lazarus probably would have been dead before he got there. 
So he knew Lazarus would be dead before he got there. But he knew also that, his, that these sisters would get their brother back. He knew that the father had something much bigger in mind than they could conceive of in this moment. It was so huge. It would show many people who he was. Many people would believe because of this. It would point ahead to the resurrection that's coming. It would not just be about death, but it would be about spiritual death. That would be about sin that, that all of mankind struggles with. He also knew this would be so huge that it would galvanize the leaders to have him killed. Jump ahead. I'm just going to jump ahead for you in the end of this chapter. For if we let him... They come together and they say, we got this guy's doing signs. Everyone's going to follow him. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? He's so successful. We got to stop him. He's raising people from the dead. That's got to stop. Right? Why? Why would they think that? It's right here. And I got to make sure. Yes. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now, these are the leaders. These are the priests. This is the Sanhedrin. So members who, who run the temple are on it. Pharisees are on it. And notice what they say. He's going to take our temple. Why? Because that's where the money is. They're getting incredibly rich off of being priests at the temple. They're going to take away our temple. And then for Pharisees who are considered not just the spiritual leaders, but the political leaders, they're going to take away our nation from us. He has to die. He has to die. The fact that he raised someone from the dead galvanized them to decide that he has to die. This is too much for us. Just on a sidelight. I am paid to be the pastor of this church by this church. So literally, I am paid through your tithes and offerings. This is not my church. It's not. First of all, this is God's church. This local group of believers, this is God's church. It is not my church. And, and, and I may phrase it that way sometimes, and, but I try not to because I never want to slip into what they're saying. I never want to slip into worrying about money and how much I make and all these kind of things that can poison and pollute the way we think about things, especially as we look at something that is God's, not ours. And that's what had happened. Their money, their temple, their position, their power, their nation, that's how they thought. And Jesus threatened that, and they would not put up with it, no matter what good things he did. We will lose this, they're saying. This is a sign. This, this sign will unite them in their hatred of Jesus because you, it, it's the political situation, the spiritual situation. The Pharisees believed in an afterlife. The Pharisees believed in God. The, the Sadducees who ran the temple said, that's just baloney. When you die, you die. It's all over. There's no afterlife. And it united them against Jesus. So he knew this. He knew what was going on, but he knew something else. He knew Mary and Martha. 
would have to be crushed with loss and sorrow and grief and regret and anger and confusion. You know, just this is that thing. Put it, put yourself in shoes. The messenger comes back. They say, did you find him? Did you find Jesus? Yes, I found him. And I told him. What did he do? He said, he won't die. This isn't to death. And then he kept teaching. Imagine what they thought, because at that moment, what are they looking at? His dead body. He won't die. Jesus got this wrong. He loves us. We love him. But he's made a huge mistake here. He won't die. Even in raising the dead, there's often a tremendous price to be paid. And the point here is that God will be glorified. Only he can do this. This is to point to who Jesus is. Only he can make someone alive who is dead. Only he can make someone spiritually alive who is spiritually dead. And often Jesus teaches through actions and words, but sometimes he teaches through seeming inaction and silence. But it is to accomplish the purposes of God. So Jesus teaches two more days, right? And, uh, and he says, let's go back. We're going back to Jerusalem. And what do the disciples say? They say, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? See, the disciples are thinking, wait, Bethany, that's just by Jerusalem. That's right where you, they tried to kill you just a little while ago, back in chapter 10. You know, they're like, Jesus, remember chapter 10? You, you, they tried to kill you back then, right? Something like that, all right? Okay, they tried to kill you. And, and, you know, in the back of their mind, well, we know they're thinking that because Thomas echoes it. They're thinking, and they may kill us. They may kill us. Because Bethany is right there. There's no way the leaders will not hear of it if Jesus goes to Bethany. Now, you notice what kind of reprimand this is from them? This is Jesus. It's a kind and Jesus, they were just trying. It's a kind and gentle way of saying, Jesus, you're an idiot. This is wrong. You're wrong. We know better than you do. We know better than you do. My, uh, it may not look like it, but my wife and my daughters generally buy my clothes, tell me what to wear, that kind of thing. Now, I mean, I go with them, right? We go to the store. I pick things I like. I remember one of my beloved daughters saying, that's a great-looking shirt, just not on you. And I'm like, ah, like, Dad, you got good taste, but not for you, <laughs> right? And this is what they're saying to him. They're saying, Jesus, don't you remember? Like, Jesus doesn't remember, right? It's kind of like they're treating him like he's a little kid that's just not, not the brightest. Jesus, they just, those people just try to kill you. You go back to those people, they kill you and us. They're being very patronizing here, right? And so it's kind of a reprimand. And notice how Jesus answered. Jesus answered, said, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Isn't, isn't that weird? You know, kind of cryptic. Like, I don't know if you've seen some of the movies that have been made in the past about Jesus make him seem like this dude who's like, high half the time, 
and just every once in a while just blurts out these cryptic things. If you walk in the daytime, you can see me. But if you walk at night, oops, right? They make it sound kind of, they make Jesus sound like that, which is just terrible because it's not at all, from what we know, not at all what he was like. But this is one of those sayings that's kind of weird and kind of cryptic. Why does he say this? Why does John include this? John could pick from a lot of source material here. But this shows something. This shows something that Jesus' agenda is different from our agenda. They want to say, stay safe. Safety is not a priority with Jesus. First of all, this seems to be some sort of a common saying that was said in that day. Jesus references the same thing in John 9. He says something very similar in John 12. And and, and we have stuff like that. I remember my dad, because he used to work on a farm, and he would say, you got to make hay while the sun's shining. And I used to say, hay grows. I don't get it. This is weird, but it's one of those old sayings, right? Or I went and worked one time for a business when I was first just had gotten out of college, and they, and they said that thing you hear sometimes, all the, we work hard and we party hard, like that. And what are they saying? This is the time to work, so work hard, you lazy bum, right? That's what that's saying. When it's time to work, you work. When it's time to play, you play. That's what they're, and this is what Jesus is. He's using something here. He's telling them. There are physical laws and there are spiritual laws. And Jesus is saying, spiritually speaking, now is the time to work. God has a plan to deal with the Lazarus situation. And more importantly, God has a plan to deal with mankind's sin problem. And he says, I have to do my father's work. It's work time. You think there's risk here. There's no more risk here than there was in the last chapter, and there's no more risk here than when I go and appear in court before them because the risk is not, I'm in charge of it. Just like when they tried to seize him earlier and said, his time has not yet come. It's not the time. So Jesus says, I'm watching the time. There's a time for things, and it's rapidly approaching. And so after he had said this, He went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. But his disciples thought he meant natural. Jesus was speaking of his death. They thought natural sleep. Now, in a way, that's kind of understandable. This is a word in the Greek that oftentimes can be used of a deep sleep and also is often used about death. And so what happens? The context determines which way you go with interpreting the word. Is it deep sleep or is it death? But here's the deal. The deal is this. He's already made it pretty plain what he's talking about. They want to opt for sleep. Why? Because then you don't have to go. We're safer. You don't have to go. I don't want to be harsh. They have a very legitimate fear. Jesus could be killed. They could be killed. But here's what's going on. Their self-interest is clouding the advice they're trying to give Jesus. They're choosing the path that is the easiest. So then he just told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, it's an interesting thing, for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now Jesus clears up any misconception now. This is for them. 
as well as for the people of Bethany, as well as for everyone like us who reads it in the years to come. He's acutely aware the time is coming. He's acutely aware the strengthening that needs to happen in the lives of these disciples. He knows how they're going to be tested. And he goes, I'm glad this is happening just for you or for your sake along with others. And then Thomas speaks, you know, doubting Thomas, right? He's the guy we all slam for being the doubter. We tend to judge him that way. But look at this. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. What a statement of faith. What a statement of courage. See, this is, this is what I love about this. We see him in, with faith and we see him later with doubt. And isn't that us? Sometimes we're full of doubt. Sometimes we're full of faith. Thomas is a perfect example of me. Of me. So now we know the background of this great miracle that's coming. Now, let's stop for a moment. We'll pick it up next week, but I want to I hone in on two thoughts real quick. And let's apply this a bit. Because what have we been doing? We've been looking at the text and seeing what the text is saying. Now, what I want us to do is let the text look at us. Let's flip that over and let the text examine us and see how we respond. First thing, in tiny letters, do you believe you are loved by Jesus? This is important. Do you see that now you are the one that Jesus loves? You are. We all know that in our head, right? We know that intellectually. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We all know that intellectually. But in real life, in difficulty, in danger, in struggles, do we act like he loves us? Or do we tend to think like our world thinks, like our culture thinks, that there's strings attached? He loves me when I'm good. He loves me when I obey. If I'm good and I obey, he loves me more. He loves me more. We have to learn how to believe and receive the the love of God. We have to be willing sometimes to say to ourselves, I am the one that Jesus loves. Bob is the one that Jesus loves. We fight lies with the truth. Rebecca, you are the one that Jesus loves. Steve, you are the one that Jesus loves. Laura, you are the one that Jesus loves. David, you are the one that Jesus loves. Julie, you are the one that Jesus loves. You are the one that Jesus loves. We preach the gospel to ourselves. The second thing I want the text to talk to us about is, are you experiencing pain and disappointment with God? Maybe not right now. Many have in the past, many are now, and many will in the future. It's part of being on this earth that is riddled with sin. They get the message to Jesus, help us. The one you love is sick. The one we love is sick. The one the disciples love is sick. Jesus heard their cry. He heard their prayer. The message got to him. Jesus, you need to do something. But he does not do what they were sure needed to be done. He does not do what someone would do when they love someone. 
He does not do what I would do if I was him. He doesn't do it. And so we struggle. And this is where we, str- we struggle and doubts and pain, all this confusion and anger. We think, hasn't he heard me? Does prayer even work? I must not have enough faith. I must be at fault. It must be my fault. There's sin in my life. That's what it is. I've screwed this whole thing up. It's on me. Maybe, maybe he doesn't love me. When Lazarus died, do you think Mary and Martha experienced these thoughts? I'm telling you, they did. They did. They were weeping. They were confused. We see it in their answers to Jesus. They're accusatory towards him. They're disappointed. They're frustrated with Jesus. Think about this. They knew, I mean, they knew Jesus got the message and they knew he purposely stayed away. He purposely delayed. They knew this. If you had been there, think about this. This, you would have questioned his love for Lazarus and for them. And are they right? Jesus, Jesus didn't care? Jesus didn't love them? No. Jesus gives us the whole story so we can know they are wrong in thinking this. They didn't realize. They didn't realize Jesus has a different agenda than they have. Every action of Jesus and every inaction of Jesus was designed to glorify God and impact people for the kingdom of God. Whose agenda is he operating on today? His. It's the same agenda. All the same. Every action is to glorify God. Every inaction is to glorify God. And listen, I I don't say this lightly, but we have to embrace this. I can I, I submit that every person in this room, every person who's watching online can think of something that was brought to Jesus, and apparently you only got silence in return. And we have to have the attitude of Martha. I love this. She said, Lord, uh, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, that's, that's accusatory. That's saying, I know you didn't get here as quick as you could. I know it. And if you had come, he'd be alive. It's on you. And then she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I still trust you. What a difficult thing that must have been for her to say. What a difficult conclusion that must have come to to come to for her to say, you failed me, but I trust you. That, That sounds like Job. Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. You see, she's basically saying, you should have come. You should have done it. I don't understand. But I'm going to trust you. The idea of the resurrection had not entered her mind, but she still believes. She is still trying to trust him. She's saying, like we've heard earlier, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Someone who admits, I have doubts, I have struggles. I'm not sure if I totally believe you, but I'm trying. Help me. 
It just hits me, Mary and Martha had to endure days of agony in front of many people. Ever felt like that? Maybe you're feeling like it now, suffering deeply, people all around, oftentimes saying the worst thing to say, saying the wrong thing, saying the thoughtless thing. We see from this and other parts of the Word of God, God will use our suffering. Suffering is never wasted. It is never worthless. In the book of Ephesians, we're told that even the angels learn from it. So it's never wasted. It's never useless. And you may be suffering right now. And you are the one he loves. And both those things are true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hard things. We don't always want the hard things, God. We don't want to suffer. We're like the disciples. Let's not go. That, in, that way leads to suffering and maybe death. We're not for it. And yet, Lord, we know deep, deep inside that sometimes when we grow the most is through suffering because it's never wasted, it's never worthless. And so we trust you for that. And we, Lord, Lord, we thank you that we are the ones you love so deeply, and we trust you for that. Help us as we leave this place to have eyes that see and ears that hear, that we see other people, we see those who are suffering, and come along and can comfort them with the comfort that you've brought into our lives over the years. Help us to be people who are known for being loving and comforting. In Jesus' name, amen.